This episode is sponsored by Karma Cola, the New Zealand drink company with a commitment to organic, fair trade ingredients and recyclable packaging. Grab a Karma Cola, Lemmy Lemonade, Gingerella or Summer Orangeade at shops and cafes throughout New Zealand. Kia ora and welcome to How to Save the World podcast. My name is Tim Bat. And I'm Waveney Worth. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Nikki Hare. Doctor. Kia ora Tim, kia ora Waveney. Yes, Dr. Nikki Hare, professor, professor of psychology at Auckland University and specialising in the psychology of sustainability, which I think you could probably count the number of people on one hand in the world specialising in that, and award-winning author. It's such a pleasure to have you here today, Nikki. It's great to be here. Good. It's so yeah. cool to see you in the flesh because I watched your video very recently in preparation for um, an episode we did, which was audience questions and answers. And a lot of people were curious about the sort of eco-anxiety that so yeah. many, um, particularly younger, but just all people really who are paying attention to these issues are experiencing at the moment. And um, what a tremendous summation of, of your book, which I haven't read, which I will, because Waveney's going to link it to Is this some me. psychology for a better world? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some great stuff in there. And that video's had over 21,000 hits, Nikki. Yeah. You're a sensation. Well, people like to watch a video. You know, yes. I, if I say to them, here's a book or there's a 15-minute video. <laughs> I know. What is it about that? Because I've read that book and it took me days. And I mean, really, was there much more? I, I, that video kind of covers it off in 15 minutes. Well, I think I actually think the process of reading it, like wading through it and sitting with it, means that it sinks in at a deeper level. I, I totally like to think agree. That it's, why it's why I've avoided audiobooks. And I know it's not the same for everyone, mm. but for me, that I'm a very, very slow reader. And I think the act of reading really puts it into my brain. Yeah, me too, actually. Mm. Yeah. What I'm hopeful for with this conversation, Nikki, is that it just does seem to be a thing around sustainability, as around hope and positivity. And yep. we're... We as humans living in this quite fragile time where we're not sure about the future that we're going into, can we hold on to hope? What are what are well, I mean, what are some of the the latest thinkings in psychology? What's some of your findings from your research? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a great essay which I often quote to people called Despair is a lie we tell ourselves. And I love that title because it really means that things like hope, despair, possibility, they're all stories that we're telling ourselves. So to me, it's not a question of whether it's right to be hopeful or or it's unrealistic to be optimistic or any of that, th those, those issues. It's like, how do you want to be in the world? And you have every sort of right to be optimistic. If you want to be despairing, you can be that too, but that has particular consequences on how you, you'll affect other people. So let's unpack that a little yeah. bit. So that there seems to be a pervasive feeling at the moment that considering the weight of all the particularly ecological stuff that's going on, and I think a really visible example is like the fires in Brazil that are happening, wiping out the Amazon rainforest, and it seems to be so money-driven and there's so much sort of like evil associated with this and so much harm that's coming out that to feel anything other than um, hopeless, you feel kind of guilty taking yep. on any other emotional state with it. Yep. But you're saying that that's, that doesn't have to be the case. No, I mean, and, and it was really interesting listening to your language, wiping out the Amazon. Do you know how big that Amazon <laughs> rainforest is? You know, so so in other words, I, I'm actually really fascinated by um, 
by the way in which we we seem to love dystopias and apocalypse. And and I think to myself, why do people want to repeat over and over again the worst possible scenarios? Like, it really fascinates me. And I think one of the reasons is that we crave to start again. We crave to start again. When I was about 16, there was a show called Survivors in which it was this virus that, that went through the world's population, leaving only 2% of people alive or something like that. And I used to watch that show thinking, bring on the virus. As long as I'm in the 2%, this looks incredibly fun. All the institutions are gone. You know, all of the mistakes I've made are gone, wiped out by this one event. So I'm a little bit suspicious when people paint worst case scenario and even more suspicious when they say they're the realists and everybody who thinks there's a glimmer of hope is just denying, you know, is in denial about the reality of it. Human beings suffer enormous and constant threat and tragedy. I was talking to a friend from Chile and she was saying, you know, when people talk about sea level rise and, you know, homes being lost, there are places near where, where I live where every few years everyone on a riverbank loses their home. Mm. So, so we sort of talk about these things as if they're kind of unthinkable, catastrophic issues but actually, human populations deal with these issues over and over and over again. And when I think about the future, um, when I think sort of projecting into the long-term future and thinking about my children, the children of the world, I want them to live with love. And I know that might sound, I don't know how that sounds, but to me, it's there's all these physical issues are one thing, but the really core issue is how we work together as people. That, to me, sort of trumps everything else. So these things happen, but what really matters is how we deal with it. So to get back to that issue of sort of optimism versus despair, if we meet it in a mood of despair, then what happens is we crumble, um, we actually let power, if you like, let the status quo just just keep moving along because there's nothing you can do. But if we greet it with optimism, it's like this constant refreshing of this assumption that we can work together. Mm. And it's a, so you're kind of saying it's a self self fulfilling prophecy that if if you're negative, that nothing can change, that will affect your behaviour, and therefore mm. nothing will change. Yeah, and and also I think you know we we live in a really um, in a, in a world of sort of black and white in a sense. We think that. That the images will either be climate change catastrophe or we'll sort of pull it all back and the status quo will reign. It sort of seems like we oscillate between mm. these two extremes. That's a really good point, actually. Like if you look mm. at those movies like Living the Change, 2040, Tomorrow, they're all, which is they're all fantastic, mm. positive examples of what the future could look like. But it's a much nicer future than what we've got now. Mm. Mm. It's mm. A, they are sort of a little bit utopian. Yeah. And, or, or you're imagining... Well, you know, the acidification and the oceans and, yeah. and yeah. these tipping yeah. points Another and, and, you know, total, exactly, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. And that sort of middle ground is something I don't spend much time wondering about if that's where we'll be. <laughs> no, but I mean, again, it partly because it's hard work. The middle ground is really hard work. It's kind of tedious. It's kind of boring. All those mistakes you made get carried with you. You know, it, it's a sort of trudging through it. It's very level. British as opposed to French. <laughs> if you like, yeah, if you like. No revolutions. Do you, mm. do you see a utility in that despair? 
that a public can feel about a situation going really bad, like with Great climate change, for example? Yeah. Psychologist. I mean, no, it, it, yeah, well, actually, that's a good point, Waveney, about there's two issues, the sort of ethical issue of even if it's if it's useful, should we encourage despair? Because so that's one issue. But but to play with the the, the question that Tim put for a minute, um, I think you, I do think that um, all of this sort of frenetic doomsday discourse, and particularly school strike for climate and those movements, are probably having a real political effect in terms of. You know, prompting a sort of atmosphere in which it's easier for the politicians that want to do something about climate change to make a move, harder to sort of say that it's not a good idea from those who are against it. You know, so I think those things are, you know, could 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 have a really positive effect in that way. But you know, it's it's the school the school strike, for example, like that's a really good example that you brought up and an interesting one because in spite of the fact that to get to the tipping point of organising an event like that globally, there was sort of a lot of despair that was communicated to get people there. With all of those mass protests, there's such an inescapable joy of that Mm. kind of communal, collectivist, we're going to get something done as a big group together. And there's like an inescapable optimism that is generated and a joy of getting, you know, all of these people aligned together to hope for a bit or, you know, to actually create a better future as well. Mm. So even though it might be despair that kind of gets you to the corner of Queen Street and wherever to meet 10,000 other people, or actually it was a huge tens of thousands of people there in Auckland, um, once, you know, everyone's there on the ground, there is this kind of inescapable optimism that is generated Mm, um, just by by banding together. And I think hope gets you there too. mm. And that's the kind of the tension of hope and despair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Something that uh, I've talked about quite a lot on this podcast, and we got quite a few questions on this in our questions and answers. So moving away from the kind of um, group dynamics into the individual sort of um, anxiety that a lot of people are experiencing, um, and I actually referenced some of your work in the video um, for how people can deal with this, but how do you think, uh, what are some helpful techniques or framings, ways to be looking at this issue as an individual to escape this very cyclical and potentially personally destructive um, feelings, emotional state around the environment and what's happening right now? I, I mean, I think I think there's really two solutions, if you like, at a personal level. One is join with others and the other is get active. Because we can't just talk ourselves out of things in some kind of abstract way. And... If you work with other people, as we were talking about before, that you just can't help a sense of optimism and possibility when you're on a march, for example, because you just see all around you this kind of energy for change and it does something to you mentally. Uh, and when you're, when you're active, and that can be really tangible stuff like you know, dealing with your waste properly, getting out in the garden, riding your bike, all of those kinds of things, or working with a group on that's interested in community level change or politics or whatever it is. As you're sort of being in the world, acting as if there's hope for the future, it's like your brain catches up with those actions. So it says to itself, oh, here I am doing stuff as if life has meaning and it's worth going on. 
Therefore, life has meaning and it's worth going on. So I think we sometimes put far too much emphasis on the ability of people to just think themselves into a different state. Mm, Be more hopeful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas that's just not possible. I mean, I would never tell it. Feelings are feelings. The feelings you've got, they're the feelings you've had. You can't change those directly. Wow, that's Um, a powerful thing to hear from a psychology expert. (laughs) You just just have to be in the world. You just have to go through each day. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes when I'm feeling down, either about these issues or personal issues, my little task for myself is just to get to the end of the day without having done any damage, anything I'll really regret. Huh. So, you know, you can sometimes be in that survival mode where you, all you have to do is get through it. So How like I feel does not matter. Some days we don't need to go forward, but it's important to not drift back. Yeah. Well, well not, and not destroy relationships, mm-hmm. not sort of chuck something in because, you know, you think it's useless. I mean, you know, obviously sometimes you have to leave jobs, you have to leave political movements, you have to leave things. I'm not saying you don't do that, but trying not to do that in that feeling of of hopelessness, um, trying to let, let yourself sit with that. And I mean, a lot of this to me is the coming out of, of yourself as this really important thing. You are not that important. I am not that important. And that is actually a really reassuring thing to remember, mm. that you will die, that your feelings, that your tragedies, that your mistakes will just fade away in the wash. And in a sense, like, what did you think, that, that you were going to be happy? Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that in a sort of a... Yeah, I'm, Nihilistic. I, I, yeah I, I'm not trying to do that in a sort of life sucks, get on with it. Did you think it was going to be fair? I'm not, I'm not trying to put that spin on it. I'm just trying to move away from what I think can be the narcissistic, uh, the narcissistic tendency in our society to think that you can do it alone, that you can discover something in which you will really make a difference. And what's more, you'll know as you're doing it that you're making that difference. Because if you look at the history of political movements and change, I suspect that 99% of the time people feel like they're going nowhere. And when the difference happens, it happens, you know, it turns in a moment. Mm. So you can't know that you're making that difference until later. Mm. There's something I remember you and I did the Theories of Change Hui a few years ago now in 2016. Yep. And where we all sort of presented a theory of of how we can get to this better place in the future and some people spoke about the power of business the power of politics or whatever and I still remember a graph that you put up when you were presenting your theory of change and it was about tipping points in social change movements Mm. and that to me was one of the most heartfelt optimistic points of my life in some ways realizing that um, think change isn't linear. So just because we've all been plugging away, trying really hard, and you can hardly see a difference, doesn't mean that that can that line of how hard it is just to create a very small amount of change is the line that it will continue to in the future because we have tipping points. Mm. We get to a certain point where suddenly everything changes. And Nikki put up a diagram. I can't remember what movement it was for, or might have been several different things where you showed how getting the first one to change took 20 years, getting the second one to change took 10 years, the third one took five years, and then got by the time you got to the 10th one, it was every sort of three minutes that people were. And it just it, it, To me, I found that really mm. heartfelt, that actually we can 
hopefully find pathways in the future where we're going to be changing a lot faster and moving yeah. a lot faster than we are right now. Mm. This is pure anecdote, but I'm just finding in, with um, my friends, there's, every week, almost every day at the moment, I find out about another friend of mine who's like going onto a either a entirely plant-based diet or a more plant-based diet, like mm. making a concerted effort to do it. And that um, social dynamic of just a normalized behavior and a change in, in what is normal in your community, that's so reflective of tipping points of like yes. you have a few people, mm-hmm. these weirdos, outliers from the outside who are, do- are living a certain way for decades. And then a couple more people join them. And then suddenly a few of their friends will join them. Mm. And then suddenly they're the majority. And I and feel, yeah, exactly. I feel mm, like that's where we're around. at in terms of sustainability right now it's gone from being something that a few outliers talk about and knock on about you used about. to be a fringe weirdo waving it that's <laughs> right out there with your Look zero waste now. buddies <laughs> now i'm a cool kid yeah so cool <laughs> <laughs> but now it does seem to be that mm. we i think we're right in the middle of a mm. tipping point which i find very uh, exciting as a communicator mm. and having you here today nikki is a cool that's a really cool thing to ask you about because i feel that you would have an informed opinion about that, do you feel that we are, or is there research to support that we're at some sort of a tipping point with sustainability and and the way we're thinking about things and acting? I mean that 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 question can't be answered because you don't know a tipping point till it's happened. Ooh. Mm. Is yeah. that true? You can't yeah. go. Ooh, I'm on the slide. Yeah. It feels like a yeah. tipping point. No, oh. I mean I I I mean, and all of us are looking for it. So we're we're trying to see it, and when we see it, we notice it. You know, we select people to be around and have conversations with that are in this. But but if you want to ask me at a purely sort of emotional level, absolutely, I, I feel like it's all lining up, and I feel like these you know these different energies, if you like, these different points of focus are really coming together, and that is contagion, that behavioural contagion effect, the way in which things do change in clusters, and that- the more yeah, and the and and it isn't linear, you know, it, it takes longer to get started. Is that because of um, one of the things you say in your book is around how humans imitate each other? Mm, mm. I mean, it's 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 imit- imitation happens on so many levels. So we imitate just straight body language. So, so we do what others are doing at that really, really physical way. But one of the really fascinating things about people is we again, this is sort of unconscious, if you like, we don't actively realise we're doing this. We also imitate goals. So we're looking at other people and figuring out what they're trying to achieve. And then we can imitate that goal. So, you know, to take sustainability, for, for, for example, if you see somebody riding your bike, maybe you ride your bike in sort of direct imitation. But if you realise that what they're trying to do is get to work sustainably you might take the bus so it's it's it, you know that's at that broader level of sort of imitating the goal so in a sense um what we're doing at the moment i think by creating this thing called sustainability uh, it's got different names but there's definitely a sense that there is something about working towards you know protecting our ecological systems and doing that in a way that also protects human flourishing that's an idea we've got we can all creatively put into that goal because we're copying the goal, if you like, rather than the Mm. specific behaviours. Another thing we imitate is stories, so we live into stories. And as I often say to my my students, you know, if you go to a movie and it's about something that you've never even thought of, really, you know, like 
climbing a mountain or whatever, and you watch the movie, you think, oh, I want to climb a mountain. Or So, so whatever it is, um, you, we're so good at projecting ourselves into that situation, we want to become that. And so we hear these stories around us and, and we can, in a sense, pick them up and, and take them into our lives and live them out. So this is, again, another incredibly important reason uh, why I sort of like to do optimism is because those stories in the movies you were talking about before, Waveney, that are somewhat utopian, but they provide an image or a possibility, a story, a goal that we can start to, to live out in our lives. So those things are incredibly important. Does the, And this to me feels like we're getting into talking about your most recent book, The Infinite Game, How to Live Well Together, which came out last year in 2018. Yep. Yeah, um, where you talk about the rules that we play by and the difference between a finite and an infinite game. Mm, mm. So in essence, first of all, I want to acknowledge the philosopher James Cass, whose, whose idea this was originally, and I've just been developing it over the last Did he write a book years. called Finite and Infinite Games? He did. That's right. the exact title. Yeah. Well done. I've heard, I haven't read it, but I've no, heard it. <laughs> no, that's a title. That's yeah. a title. Um, so, so my version of it, just acknowledging its origin, is that the infinite game is about keeping what we most deeply value in play and inviting others in. And finite games are the goals, structures, competitions and rules by which we organise ourselves. So the infinite game, if you like, is this primary, um, is, is a primary endeavour that, that reflects core human values as people who are of the planet Earth, as people that have got so problems to solve. You know, how do you, how do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you look after yourselves? How do you love other people? How do you work out how to work together as a community? All of those kinds of issues. And because we've got common problems to solve and because we are of planet Earth, so we're all in these biological systems, um, these core values reflect all of that. So, I mean, it's just a ton of psychological research that shows that people value being in community. They value belonging probably above all else, probably even above survival, food and drink and so on. A person without other people loses sort of coherence and meaning so quickly. But we also want to express ourselves. We also want to be creative. And I think we're drawn to the natural world. This is a more controversial one because uh, people can certainly live at quite a distance from nature. Look at most people in urban settings. Um, but the beauty, the sheer beauty of the natural world and the feelings of awe that it creates in us um, and the kind of tangibility, the desire to be in it, you especially see it in children suggests that that's also sort of really part of this nature that we've got. So the infinite game is always sort of trying to come back to those really core things that bring life and vitality, whereas finite games are all of those structures. So they're the schools, the hospitals, the businesses, the roads, the bikes, all of those things. Now, we need those, but they're always on probation. They're never the thing. And what happens sometimes in society, and I think you know, we, we see lots of evidence of this around us, is we start to take the finite games too seriously. So something like the oil industry, which is everywhere, like it's got you know, this petrol stations everywhere that it's fueling our, our, most of our cars still. You know, it's, it's, it's producing a lot of the electricity, not so much in New Zealand, but in other parts of the world. So anyway... That is so sort of woven into the systems that we forget it's not the point sometimes. Um, 
that the point is, you know, all of the things that we we value that might be enabled by that system, but not that system itself. And right, is that the point of the differentiation? And it's important to remember that framing of finite and infinite yep, games, yep. and not to confuse the two. I think it's I think it's really important not to confuse the two because it's a really good way of figuring out what is sacred, what is special, what is precious, and what is something that even though right now I feel I'm holding on to it desperately, um, it's actually not the core of what makes a good society. I find it a really useful way to think about those things. A means to an end in another way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a means to an end. It's it's a secondary value. Um, It's an extrinsic value, an instrumental value, all of those things. Thank you to our episode sponsor, Kokako Organic Coffee Roasters, whose team is steadfastly committed to their fair trade, organic and carbon neutral certifications, which not only allows us to trust that what they say they do is what they do, it also makes this cup of their single origin Colombian coffee I'm sipping on taste that much more delicious. You can find them in the grinder of some of the best cafes and restaurants across New Zealand, or you can jump on their website and sign up for a subscription for home shipped in a home compostable bag. That's kokako.co.nz. I've heard you also explain the, the infinite game as a game that you obviously want because it's infinite. The object of that game is to keep it in play. And mm. to me, the game that we play that uh, seems to be an equivalent would be Hacky Sack, where the, the ultimate game mm game is to keep it going for as mm. long as you can mm. and if everybody touches the the hack and you go yay everyone's stoked and you if you keep it going for longer everyone's more and more stoked um which is quite different to finite games like rugby or cricket mm. where the object is to win yeah and that's kind of that's kind of the premise of the infinite versus the the finite games um that, that you talk about and so the, the finite games if you say use a sport where there's two teams competing as sort of your analogy for um the games we play in society whether it's well you're just kind of winning right that's what you're trying to do when you're playing a finite game is you're trying to win and you, you work out what the rules of the the game are and then you try and succeed at that game yeah, whatever that's that right. is that's yeah. right that's yeah. right yep yeah. and winning can be like an absolute competition like a sports team where there's a winner or a loser or it can be slightly sort of more um less directly competitive so you can getting a driver's license for example you kind of win the game you you solve the problem of how to get a driver's license by you know following all these rules never going over 50 when, when you're driving instructors sitting next to you or it's an instant fail etc etc yeah. but it's not at yeah. the expense of anyone else it's not zero sum that's right yeah so, right so, it so, have so to yeah be, yeah so yeah. not all winning is zero sum but mm. you know that the more I've sort of looked into this it's actually extraordinary how much we rely on competition in our society to organize ourselves. Schools, for example, um, I mean, thank goodness in New Zealand with NCEA, we have, we don't have a competitive system, a direct competition for grades because all students who achieve standards can get them. But then schools have prize givings in which a teacher has to line up their students and decide who's best. Now think about that for a minute. Think about it for a minute. Imagine getting all your friends together and saying, oh yeah, I'm going to give you the prize this year. Like it's, it's quite an extraordinary act and we're so used to it. 
it. We're, we're so sort of, it's so embedded in us that education will rank people, this idea, that to us that's normal. And, and so all of the ways in which it prevents people from working well together is overlooked because ultimately that infinite game, the happy the hacky sack is all about working well together. That's that's the essence of that game. It's knowing who's in the position to take it next, what their skills are, whether they can you know take it with their hand, their foot, whatever. Um, that's what it's all about. Competition stifles that. Do you think, think that's cultural, particularly, or is this a human trait? I mean, that's a great question. I think that I I definitely do think that people have in them a a drive to to be themselves, to express themselves, to be noticed, um, to be sort of to have their talents recognised, and in a sort of a sense, you could call that competition, maybe. Um, and cultures certainly have very different rules about how that drive is directed. So most cultures. I think, have much more emphasis on underplaying winning, um, on, you know, being part of the group and so on. We have, we, we really push winning to the fore. But even in our culture, winners know that you have to be a humble winner or people will hate you. I mean, literally hate you. So true, particularly um, New Zealand. Eh? Like, I, I, was, I um, did an exchange and I was in the States for a year and because I, I was an A student back home in New Zealand and... I was used to very carefully peeling the top of my um, paper back when I got it to see what I got. I was like, oh, good, A, put it back down, you know. And it was the kids in my class that were getting C's and failing that were like basically holding their papers up, laughing about it. And yeah. that was those were the kids that were verbal. And in the States, to my absolute surprise, it was the opposite. These kids were... Um, holding up their papers going, I got an A, I got an A. And I was like, mm. wow, like if you ever needed a, a tangible sort of a example of the tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, like that's it. So mm. as, as New Zealanders, we, yeah. I mean, we, we're still we're still caught in the overall sort of competitive. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. We yeah, want to yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. win. So, yeah. so it's, um, yeah, but – but it's it is odd. I don't think it's very natural for for winners to push themselves forward. I, I I actually think that's I think very very early on in life as a child you learn that that doesn't work well. Oh, when you say push yourself forward, you mean sort of uh, broadcast yourself yeah. as a winner. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's ultimately yeah. we 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 know on some level that we're social, we're pack, we have to regulate the more yeah. exactly yeah. the more yeah. important thing is yeah. to get on with each other and and. Yeah. It's irritating having that, that A student. That being said, though, I think it is meritocracies, I think, are probably an expression of some evolutionary things that we've got. I suspect mm, that mm. We, we, you know, want to be the ones that find the food and the best mate and the best house and all of that sort of thing. Do, do you um, believe there's some ways that we can sort of trick ourselves and use those drives for the good of the environment somehow? If we can change the um, the rules of the game or the... The, the sort of structure that we exist in, or do you think that we need to just fairly wholesale move ourselves away from from this individualistic zero sum competitive style of living? I mean, yeah, that's also a really, <laughs> really important question. My, You're very affirming my, of us, Nikki. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, oh, actually, yeah. When people say that's a good question when they're being interviewed, I say, "Will you stop saying that?" <laughs> <laughs> and here I go. Here I go. Here I go. Well, I, now I know why people say that on interviews. It's to 
give themselves time to think <laughs> what they mean is I haven't a clue how to answer that. Actually, that's Thank you true. for giving that's me a the only break. time you ever see, say that's a good question is when you're like, oh, <laughs> yes, the answer isn't evident. It's not ready to yeah. come out of my mouth. Okay, but this, the, my personal view is that that our society is so well, um, how do I put this? We're so well practiced in the art of competition. We're so quick to use it to try and bring forth new solutions that we should be pretty much putting all our effort in the opposite direction because it, it keeps coming up anyway. So, for example, mm. I would I run a competition um, and have an award system for people that came up with a new invention to do whatever it is to um, you know have have a efficient lighting system that that worked directly on solar power blah 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 all of those kinds of things. I would not do that because for me personally, um, the the fallout of that is too great. I I have too much awareness of that. Hmm. If somebody else has a vision for that and how it will work, I'm not saying they shouldn't do it because this isn't one of those sort of moral issues and where it's an either or. But I guess to slightly to slightly move away from that question directly, what really fascinates me is how do you generate interest, creativity, excellence? Because I do think excellence is a thing, yeah. i.e. people doing their absolute best to solve something. So how do you generate all of that with out a competitive structure, so that to me is a really is a much more interesting question in in that sense than whether we should use and make use of these competitive urges to try and um, redirect people perhaps towards different problems than they are in at the moment. I'm I'm always I'm interested in Wikipedia, for example, and in fact many many online software in which people simply because they want to solve a problem mm. give of themselves. The only reward is to basically contribute to this greater mm. yep. project, yep. this yep. greater result yep. at the yep. end of it, and to solve a problem. You see, I think. I think people find it irresistible to solve problems that they're presented with. Mm. And and if you can give a person the right problem, and obviously you have they have to have time. So so money for example can buy time. You know, there's ways in which sort of competition success works in that regard. They just can't help but put their energy into solving it. Um, so and in fact competition can be a sort of complex add-on that can make it more difficult. This is interesting. So there is a distinction between problem problem solving doesn't have to be competitive in nature. Well, it it, it intrinsically isn't. Uh, I mean, the example I talk about, one of the examples I give in the Infinite Game book is if you want to kick a kick the rugby ball, you do, you can't think about winning in that moment. You you have to be visualizing where you want it to go. So. Um, you know, you, you when you're focusing, if you're trying to focus on beating the other person, you will not be focusing on doing what you need to do to beat the other person, if you like. Mm. Um, so that's what I mean about it being a complex overlay, in fact, yeah. rather than a, a direct way of 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 achieving that thing we're trying to achieve. Some of this wider chat feels like um, it might not be directly related to the environment and sustainability, but I am actually in my head sort of stitching it together through the economic system that we live under because I think we have in the West agreed 
to live in a very competitive, capitalistic, individualistic society, which puts money as a huge value. Mm. And everyone should be out there trying to make as much money for themselves Mm. as possible. And even sort of determines what you should do with that money is buy cool things and big houses and make your life really flash and shiny and cool for other people to look at. You know, it comes back down to copying each other. How do you win this game that we're playing? Yeah. So do you, I mean, do you think that the psychology that has led us to this economic system, which I personally think is to blame for a lot of the ecological damage that is being done wholesale at the moment, Mm. do you think we need to kind of have this big societal change about what the values we have in a society are? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I think we need to keep coming back to what it is that is the core things human societies value. So every society has rules, um, finite games, if you like, that are an attempt to live well on the planet. So Every society is struggling with this. No society is doing it particularly well at the moment. And you could, in a sense, say we're one big society because we're all so interconnected. It's actually quite difficult to sort of, you know, separate off different parts of um, of the human population in that way. So the economic system is the way in which we are all sort of interacting with and wrapped in with each other. So if you think about money, for example... There's many ways in which it's our most common language, isn't it? It's the one thing we all understand no matter where we're positioned. So do I think we should replace money with something else as our common language and value? Absolutely. How you do that, that's very difficult. But what I do think is that every person, every organisation can turn back towards these values and their decisions. So you can ask yourself these questions. Is, you know, what is going to be the impact of this particular decision on the natural world? What is going to be the impact on our bonds with each other? What is going to be the impact on individual people's ability to express themselves? And if you actually ask those three questions, keep coming back to those three questions, you know, expression, connection, the natural world, then you start to turn your systems towards us. For example, I've, I've I've run a um, sustainability network in the Faculty of Science at my university. And because I'm constantly asking those questions, we do things like have food at every meeting. This builds the bonds between each other. The food is always vegan slash vegetarian. This is, you know, attempting to look after the natural world in which we're in. Everybody has first name only name badges, none of this professor that, doctor this, whatever that. That is an attempt to invite everybody to express themselves as they are and many other things. I just gave you one little example of each of those things. So I, all of those are deliberate. They're they're all, and you have to work at them. You have to constantly work at them and constantly bring them into play. So so I, I feel like there's ways in which you can move forward just a little bit towards those values all the time mm. and that they all go together. Because essentially you're saying that people want to be good. That's one of the things I've heard you say. People yeah. want to be good and so you're putting in things in place that can facilitate that and starting with that as a belief. So it's not people telling people what to do or how no, they should act. This no. is something that you, from your research, can see as something that is very intrinsic to who we are. Yeah. Well, let, because let's let's remember this. When when if we think about people wanting to be good, it all sort of comes back to this 
sociable nature of ours. So as a child, you learn that if you're mean to somebody else, they're not going to talk to you the next day. And they might tell other people you were mean and they don't talk to you either. If you don't share your lunch with somebody this day, they won't share your lunch with you tomorrow. Like you get it really, really quickly. So this does, so in a sense, the desire to be good is the desire to be part of a group. Those two are so completely entangled. So true. Yeah. And the other way, you, there's a sense in which if you win these competitions, or the fantasy is if you win the competition, the competition, i.e. big house, big salary, high status job, all the rest of it in society, you're somehow protected from this. This is almost a fantasy. If I get enough money, enough property, enough blah, 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 then I don't have to be dependent on other people. It doesn't matter whether people like me or not. But the trouble is, the tragedy of that little fantasy is it still does matter. Yeah, yeah you know. In the core, what I've you know, what we read about celebrities and yeah. things like that is yeah. it's almost once you go past a certain point, it flips back and you become more isolated and more unhappy yeah. and more disconnected from the There's groups a real that you're tragedy. trying to be part real of. Real yeah. tragedy yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 And I think again, I think across human history, we've understood this as people generally. In most societies, we've understood this. And there's, a, there's always a sort of writing of the balance. You know, it's like societies go too far one way and then they come back. Unfortunately, this is often through, you know, war, revolution, you know, major natural disasters and so on. So our sort of our, our task is to try and do this peacefully. I like what you've also said about, as a Pākehā, uh, I went to your inaugural lecture a few weeks ago, um, just to clarify, Nikki, you've been lecturing for years and years, this <laughs> this was your inaugural lecture as a professor, as opposed to an associate professor. <laughs> it's the titles game. I know, I was just Nobody like... Nobody outside the university has a clue, which I know, is I really to, nice. I had to email for clarification, but... Um, <laughs> But at this lecture, you brought out this thing I had never thought about, something that I had totally always been doing, of sort of buying into this thing that indigenous cultures are more caring, uh, they're the custodians of our natural environment, which is all true and um, really helpful narratives, but... What I hadn't ever really realised was that what that means as a Pākehā, the story that you're telling yourself about who you are and what your cultural traits are and just remembering that whatever you tell yourself sort of predicts your behaviour. So if you say, oh, by contrast, I don't care about the environment and I'm not a custodian of this environment, it's actually a really powerful message that we're continually telling ourselves that as parking we're actually pretty hopeless at this I, stuff i think I, that's mm. such an important point i think there is um particularly at the moment in i think our genuine and good want to lift up um especially a set of people who have historically been sort of marginalized in society there's a bit of othering that goes on with that yeah yeah i mean Dan Hakaroa, who I work with quite a bit at the university, um, who is Māori, he talks. He says we're all indigenous to this planet, and you know if you read the mythology, um, if, if if your descendants are primarily from Britain, for example, and you read the mythology of Britain, 
such similar themes come up as as you see in in Maori, you know, Mataranga Maori. So, ideas of of a living landscape mm. in which all of the natural entities have a have a subjectivity, and and are our, in, in fact our ancestors, um, and and notions of the earth as a as a sort of mothering, nurturing kind of figure, and the sky as a as a father principle, and and the interrelationship between these. I mean, and people as descended from trees and and so it is it is pretty intriguing to see how most cultures possibly all cultures when we were living close to nature had stories in which we were completely entwined with nature and as Wavener was saying I I I don't think it's very useful or even very true to constantly assume that there's this western culture which is by its nature, disconnected from all of this. More recently, I've come to think that the the, the real problem, if you like, around why cultures and how cultures become disconnected from their natural environments is dislocation. So when you enter into another into another land, you haven't had the time and the space to become intimate with that land, and then you act in ways that can be really destructive. And I think that's partly because you haven't had the time and place to become intimate with it, but it's also because... Um, you yourself are literally disoriented. Um, I heard an interview with Arundhati Roy from India, and somebody said to her, could you ever leave India? And she paused for a minute and she said, but I'm like a tree. I'm like a tree. I couldn't be uprooted and leave India. And and that I, that sort of idea, I think it's really important to remember people who have ancestors from Europe and live in New Zealand, those ancestors had to lift themselves out of the soil, (laughs) come to another land and then try and cope. You know, that's not easy to do. That's not easy to do. Um, But as I also said in that lecture, I think um, no matter where you've come from, those ideas of connection to nature, whakapapa to nature, understanding that, it's really intuitive. It makes real sense because we've all got that in our roots. And simultaneously, I think every human being on this planet is now disconnected from it to a greater or lesser extent because the vast majority of the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the medicine we get, the houses we live in have been made in a way that is not by people we know connected to and about our land. So, Nikki, what's the one thing you think people could do to make a difference? To in, in that sustainability space? I mean, the thing for me is it's always about looking around you at who you are and what is possible for you to do and not to assume that you can do anything dramatic, exciting, different, original. It might be, but it absolutely does not have to be. It can be just the thing that is right in front of you. So I to answer that question directly, I think you did actually. That was <laughs> no, genius. No. Yeah, but <laughs> it was I, like I, it depends. The one thing isn't one thing that you can say. It's, it's it depends it's one on thing. one thing for each of you who you are and yeah. And you know what I was, I was going to say a little bit further. You just sit down. If you listen to this, you sit down and you think, what is that thing I've been telling myself? I'm going to do that next week, next month, next year. What's that thing? And do that one. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great chat. How um, can people buy your book, find you online? 
Yeah, I'm re- really easy to track down because I'm the only person with my name, I think, in the entire world, I suspect. Really? I think so. How do you spell it? So it's N-I-K-I. That's a tricky bit because there's a lot of ways to spell Nikki. So And then H-A-R-R-E and University of Auckland. But um, then you'll get to my homepage and and... Everything will open up to you if you, you need get to my to university homepage. That's on there. Uh, it's tremendous. Yeah, the, the video is on there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time Great. for chatting thank you. to us today. Yeah, really inspiring. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Karma Cola. Karma Cola are committed to using only fair trade and organic ingredients and only serving up their delicious drinks in recyclable materials. Grab a Karma Cola, Lemmy Lemonade, Ginger Ale, or Summer Orangeade at a shop or cafe near you.